Welcome to the Ladies of Kamikaze podcast. I'm Erin McGrath, and today I'm honored to have Marjorie Liu with us in the studio. She's a prolific author, and her latest project, which we here at the Ladies absolutely love, is monstrous, with artist Sana Takeda, published by Image Comics. She's also written for Marvel and is best known for her work on Astonishing X-Men, X-23, Dark Wolverine, and Black Widow, and just recently, Han Solo. She's also an accomplished novelist, well-known for her urban fantasy and paranormal romances. Marjorie Liu, thanks for joining us today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. We're really excited. (laughs) So Amazon recently named Monsters Volume 1 as number one on their list of top 20 comic and graphic novels for 2016. But for those unfamiliar with Monstrous, would you mind giving us a quick overview? So Monstrous takes place after a cataclysmic war. And it's about this young woman, this, you know, this this young woman in her late teens, um, who finds herself at the heart of a conflict um, because she doesn't realize it, but she has a monster. She has a living weapon inside of her body. And it's slowly eating away at her. And... Before this discovery of this monster, she herself feels like that she is losing her humanity, um, regardless of, of what is inside of her, because she is a victim of this war. She came out of this war just traumatized, feeling like that she completely lost her humanity. And as she journeys to put herself back together again and figure out whether or not she can be a person, an actual person, you know, she learns that she has this creature inside of her. And so it creates this this terrible conflict because she already doesn't feel like a human being. She already feels like a monster, and she has a literal one actually inside of her, battling for control over her body. So on the very first page of the first volume, we meet Micah, who is the protagonist that you're talking about. And it's in a really striking way. She's naked. She has a collar and chain. She's being auctioned off as a slave. We also see that she's a young woman of color and an amputee. But the look on her face has strength, defiance, and guile. Why did you choose to open the story this way? Well, there are a variety of reasons. So let me break it down. Um, First of all, I wanted to reverse the idea of the woman who is captured and terrorized. So, so often we see in our popular fiction and film, um, film and television, um, and in, in books as well, we see women who are uh, chained up. They are they're being terrorized. They're being threatened with rape and murder. It's this really. It's an image that I'm I'm personally sick of. Like I'm tired of it. I'm tired of torture porn. I'm tired of just women always being victims. But at the same time, when I open Monstrous, I wanted to hit readers with a page that says a lot of different things. You know, I wanted um, world to be revealed. I wanted character to be revealed. And I wanted, in some ways, um, the the rules to be at least implied and hinted at. And so when you open the first page of Monstrous and you see this young woman, you see Micah, she is chained up and she is naked. But unlike other portrayals we've seen of, of women in popular fiction, she is, she's defiant. You know, and what we learn through the dialogue and through the caption is that she's there for a reason. She's planned this. Um, she is in full control. And that was really, really important for me that that we open with this, you know, this image of this young woman who should be in a vulnerable state, and yet she's not. Now, the other aspect of this, too, is that she is a young woman of color, and she is an amputee. And so often when I was growing up, I would witness how people of color were rendered invisible, literally rendered invisible. So we would be out, for example, and, you know, my dad is Chinese, you know, speaks really great English, perfect English, but he would ask a question. And instead of answering the question directly to him, people would talk to me or my mom. Or, you know, we would go to McDonald's or something like that, and he would, you know, order coffee, and people would respond to me or my mom, or they would act like they couldn't understand him, even though his English was perfect. Again, it was like this cloak of invisibility, and it really only had to do with the fact that that he was a person of color. And the same thing is true, I, I feel like, and what I've witnessed for people who are disabled, for people who are in wheelchairs, for people who are amputees. In some ways, there's a veil of invisibility that, that wraps around them where folks will look above, past, anywhere but a site of injury 
or you know, they'll look past someone who's in a wheelchair, but not necessarily at them. And what I wanted to do on the first page of Monstrous was also, in addition to everything else I was trying to achieve, I wanted to force people to see that you cannot look away from Micah. She is a young woman of color who is an amputee, and you can't pretend not to see her. You just can't. And that, to me, was very important. So on that first page, there she is being sold as a slave. And the auctioneer boasts that she's archaic, but with a fully human appearance. And that's billed as a plus, right? Mm -hmm. Conversely, in issue eight, an archaic sailor taunts Micah, saying, you smell like a dirty human. You look like a dirty human. That makes you a dirty human. So Micah's stuck with passing as human and in a way is isolated from archaic, her archaic community. Could we talk a little bit about that and your personal experience and how that shaped that? Oh, yeah, and that's a great question. So Monstrous is very much, I mean, there are many themes in Monstrous, but uh, Monstrous is very much a book about hybridity and what it means to be mixed race um, and how that affects a person, how that plays out over a person's life. And so Micah, like a lot of mixed race people, has the ability to pass. And that's not an insignificant thing. And it also, though, shapes how she's able to move through the world and the interactions that she has. But the thing is, even though she can pass as human, she's not. You know, she is still an arcanic. She still has the blood of an arcanic that permits a quote-unquote human, a Kumea, to enslave her and to want to harvest her body. So no matter what she looks like underneath her skin, she is still a member of this larger community. But what's interesting about that is that as in real life, when you're mixed race and you can, you know, you you live in that borderland of sort of racial ambiguity, it creates this, this very weird experience sometimes where you want to be part of a community. You feel like you are a part of a community. But because of the way you look, you know, you occasionally encounter border guards. <laughs> you know, folks who, who want to test your authenticity. You know, when I was growing up, I felt very much a part of my Chinese family. And I was back home just this last weekend, and I was looking at old photographs. And I'm, oh, I'm surrounded by all my Chinese cousins and all my aunts and my grandparents up in Vancouver. And we were there every weekend, and it was wonderful. I loved it. And so I felt very much embraced and like this was my family. This was who I was. This was my community. But I was mixed race. And I was this little girl with like sort of reddish hair. And, and I, I, I was racially ambiguous. I, I was not easy for everyone to place. And so... As I was growing up, I would try to join Asian American community groups and, and I would try to, you know, be part of this, this thing that I, you know, this part of myself that I, I really loved. And I would encounter occasionally resistance because I didn't look fully Chinese. I would receive comments like, well, you don't need us. You don't need us. You, you can pass as white. You don't actually need to be part of us. Which is a kind of a strange comment to make because it also implies why would you want to be Chinese if you didn't have to? And as a little kid, it wounded me and it stuck inside my head. And so I would say for many years, I felt like it wasn't my place to claim a Chinese American identity. Uh, not exactly that I was an imposter, but that it wasn't fully mine. And so it took me a long time to actually feel comfortable calling myself Chinese American because of that. I mean, I feel comfortable now, but it was part of this longer process. And so for Micah, especially in a world in which passing can mean life or death, her ability to, to do so, the fact that she looks human, it would cause perhaps anger in others. You know, it would lead her in some cases to feel excluded. And that was something that I was trying to get into the book in the first arc the mixed race experience is very much front and center. You know, it's not like I'm trying to hide it. But I also, in this second arc, even though it's, again, as with the first arc, it's not explicit, I wanted to keep referencing back to it because I feel like it's an important part of identity that I don't want to let slip into the background. 
related to that idea, so in addition to her human appearance and her arcanic background, Micah is literally sharing her body mm-hmm. with the monstrum. We see them fight for control, sometimes with bloody results. What do you want readers to understand about their relationship and how that plays out? Well, the important thing to remember about this relationship is that um, no matter what happens, Micah is always fighting for her agency. I think that what we see in a lot of possession stories is that, um, especially when it comes to women possessed by demons and ghosts, is that a lot of times women lose their agency, that women are sort of just consumed by these creatures and these, you know, this darkness, and they end up needing to be rescued by someone who can free them, you know, liberate them. And in the case of Micah, there's no rescue. There's no liberation. She has to do this on her own, and she knows that. I mean, there's never any question, I think, in her mind of what it is that's at stake. It's always been very important to me that she constantly be seen fighting with this thing, negotiating with it, trying to understand it, because her life is at stake, and she's the only one who can deal with this. And she doesn't want it. She doesn't want it inside of her. She feels like that it's this violation, it's this foreign entity that is inhabiting her skin, and she wants to get rid of it. She has a, a, a lot of things on her plate. <laughs> she has a lot of things on her plate. Um, when when Monstrous begins, she doesn't realize that a monster is also on her plate, but it is. And once she figures that out, part of her mission, part of her, her great desire is to rid herself of this thing. And as the journey continues for Micah, part of what she needs to figure out is whether or not getting rid of this thing is in her best interest and whether that's even possible. And the monster itself has its own agenda. The monster is a sentient creature. It has a history. It has a personality. You know, it has emotions. It has desires. And it doesn't want to be in Micah any more than she wants it inside of her. It just has thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years more experience than she does. And even so, even with all that experience, in some ways, it is just as new to this um, relationship and, and what it means as she is. And so they're both figuring each other out. So I understand you're very close with your grandparents. Mm-hmm. They were both in China during World War II. Your grandfather served in the Air Force, and your grandmother, as a 14-year-old girl, had to flee on foot across the country in order to escape Japanese troops. Mm-hmm. They must have had some harrowing stories of survival. And Monstrous captures so much of the brutality and fallout of war embodied in this one young woman and her quest. Could you speak more to the centrality of war to the story and to who Micah is? Well, what's interesting about that is I grew up hearing about the war. When I think about the stories that my grandparents would tell, especially my Chinese grandparents, occasionally my mom's parents as well, but but especially my Chinese grandparents, the war was very present. I think this might be true for a lot of kids who are the children of those who were who participated in World War II, that the war never really went away. You know, it sounds like a cliche to say that the war never ended, but in some ways it didn't because it was part of their living memory. And so my grandmother would just randomly, at least once on every visit, just have an aside about the war. She'd be cooking dinner or we'd just be sitting around and, you know, she would just pop something out like, oh, that reminds me at the time. And my grandfather was the same where he would, you know, he would be doing his Tai Chi in the morning and he would pound his chest and he would give me this big grin and he'd be like, I'm so strong. I'm really strong. And then he would he would give me a war story <laughs> like that. That was his segue. I'm so strong. And then he would tell me a war story. And this was the case from a young age. And I loved hearing their stories. I think in hindsight now that I'm older, I, I realize, wow, okay, that was really messed up. <laughs> like the things you were telling me. Woo. But as a kid, I was fascinated. But then the other side of that was that I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, but particularly in the 80s when I was really, really young. That was a time when the apocalypse was very much on the minds of people. The apocalypse was present. The apocalypse was alive in the imagination, whether it was in film or in the news. It was sort of inescapable. And so as a kid, I was obsessed with the apocalypse. I think that when we grow up, we all have our favorite horror story narratives. Some people, it's vampires. Some people, it's werewolves. Mine was, you know, the apocalypse. 
There was a part of me that was just convinced the world was going to end at any moment, and I had to be prepared for it. I had, you know, now it's sort of people talk about having their survival packs. Well, when I was like 11 years old in the late 80s, I had my survival pack. Like I had it ready to go because I was convinced that there was going to be like a nuclear wasteland and there were going to be like crazy like biker people rampaging through the city and I needed my matches and my raincoat and my little like tiny, you know, pocket knife so I could just run away to the woods and survive. That was my childhood. That was my imaginary. It says a lot <laughs> about maybe who I became. But that was m- part of my internal narrative. And so, and so when I think about war, and when I think about trauma, and when I think about how that is passed down through generations, that for me is a very real thing. That's a very real thing. Because um, I saw it play out in very particular ways, not just with me, but you know, with my grandparents, with the rest of the family too, with my dad and, and my aunts. And so when it was time to work on Monstrous, when I was thinking about this young woman who didn't just hear about this war secondhand, she actually experienced it, she actually survived it, it was very important to me to make that a real thing, you know, to not hide from it, to not soften it. Frankly, I suppose I did soften it because the things that happen in Monstrous, as horrific as they are, are still in some ways light very light compared to the actual reality. But there's no need to turn this into, you know, like, like a something that's too much for people to handle because it's already a lot. Monstrous is already a lot. But I couldn't shy away from it. I couldn't shy away from it and I couldn't shy away from from what war does to people and how it really is this profoundly deforming experience. And it deforms people in different ways. Because my grandmother, for everything that she went through, she survived and was able to go on with the rest of her life with a smile. And whether that smile was hiding something else, I can't say. But all I know is she was a strong, spunky, cheerful woman who went through hell and came out the other side with a big old grin and unbroken, completely unbroken. Not everyone not everyone experiences what she did and could say the same. And so part of also my curiosity about Micah in this story was was trying to figure out, well, how do you put yourself back together again so that you can smile, that you can feel like a human being and go on and live your life as if nothing happened? How do you do that? I feel like there's a big theme of consumption in this book, <laughs> both literal and figurative, right? So Micah is possibly being consumed by this monstrum, the monstrum in its own way is being consumed by Micah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the Kumea (laughs) and their very literal consumption of the Arcanics. And it made me think about the issue of uh, the bodies of people of color recently Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and how that's been problematic pretty much since the country began. What is the connection that you want people to take away? What would you like people to to get out of this book? And how would you like them to think about that? Hmm, That's an excellent question. You know, the thing about Monstrous is I've written it so that if all you want to take away from Monstrous is that it's a steampunk, epic, dark fantasy set in an alternate Asia, boom, you got that. You can totally do that. If, however, you want to take a deeper reading from it, the subtext is there. You know, whether it's about race, whether it's about gender, um, whether it's about um, slavery, it's all sort of written into the text. And you're right that this is very much a book about consumption and what it means to be consumed and what it means in some cases to be powerless to protect yourself from that consumption, that there are systems of oppression that are actively engaged in commodifying you, in containing you, in breaking you down and using all the different parts of you. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, fetishizing you. And that's all part of Monstrous. It was important for me to have that in the book because it's a reflection of reality. 
You know, the great thing about fantasy is that it creates a level of estrangement that allows us to engage with reality and allows us to engage with, you know, really difficult topics that we wouldn't normally want to touch with a 10-foot pole. But because it's fantasy, we can pretend that we're not actually engaging. And even for me as a writer, it allows me to engage with these topics and talk about them in ways that that I might not be able to if I was trying to write just straight reality. It's it's a good tool for me as well. But yes, yes, that had to be that had to be part of the book. Just as reflections on hybridity had to be part of the book and reflections on on war and trauma and race. It's all part of the same system. So you've spoken many times at this point about why you made Monstrous a woman-led and driven story. Why did you feel like comics were the best medium to tell that story in? You know, at this point, what's interesting is I love writing novels. I love writing novels. There's something really, really beautiful about being fully immersed in a world and building that world on nothing but your words and also being fully immersed in the interiority of a character. Novels are beautiful for that. And I also love film. Film is fantastic. I love the visual aspects of film, the action, the movement of film. But comics are that perfect intersection between novels and film. You have all the interiority of characters, but you can capture all the visuals and visual world building and action of film. And I could not have written Monstrous as a novel. The gender stuff aside, the race stuff aside, Monstrous is a book that was too big to be inside a novel. It required the visual medium. There's no way to capture a monstrum in words that would do it justice. In some ways, there's no way to capture the Kumea in ways that would do it justice. There's something very visceral and powerful about seeing the visual of a Kumean scientist, of Lady Sophia, holding up the head of a child. And I can write that I can write that, but to actually see it on the page is something very, very different. So in some ways, it never crossed my mind to write Monstrous in any other other medium. It just never occurred to me because the scope of it was too big. What was required of the story, it was just too big. And I knew how powerful it would be as well to see images of women and people of color because so often when we read a text... So one way of putting this is when we read a book, it doesn't matter necessarily if we describe a character as black or Asian. You know, depending on what your experience is when you're reading a book, you will see in those characters what you expect. And so in writing a book in which all the characters are people of color, in writing a book in which all the characters are women, to see that to actually be forced to see it and acknowledge it and not be able to back away from that and impart a vision of on these characters that you expect to see, that's really important. It's really, really important because this is a society in which all of our heroes and heroines are mostly white. And, you know, growing up, all my favorite films, and I love film, but almost all my favorite films and almost all my favorite books, the heroes and heroines were white. And so what happens is when you grow up like that, you know, for decades upon decades, being engaged with a particular kind of entertainment that shows a particular system of what is heroic and who you should root for, you forget how to root for yourself and for your own community. And that's a very particular sort of psychic wound that we don't always notice. We like what we like. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is, you know, if you like what you like long enough, then you also forget to, you know, realize, wow, there are other, there are other things out there that are, would be just as powerful. When we read a book and that hero or heroine perhaps is described differently than what we've been trained to expect, Well, chances are good we're just going to place on that character our ideal of what a hero and heroine should be. And we've been trained to think of of our protagonists in a very particular way as being very particular kind of people. And so that's why it's important to have, you know, it was important for me to, to write Monstrous as a graphic novel where the visuals 
leave no mistake of identity, where you are forced to see, wow, this is a world filled with women, and they are all women of color. Oh my gosh, wow, okay. And you might not even notice. If you don't notice, cool, that's fantastic. But if you do, if you happen to pay attention and be like, wow, looky here, that's great too. But again, as with everything, you have to see it. You can't really look away and pretend it's not there. Well, very much related to that, you recently spoke at the Humanist Hub. And in your remarks, you said you felt 2016 was the year of whitewashing Asian Americans. (laughs) From Aloha to Dr. Strange to the announcement of Ghost in the Shell, and we will have links on the site for those who might not be familiar with these controversies. In all of those movies, Asian American identities have been minimized, if not completely erased from the screen. So if monsters were made into a movie or a TV streaming series, do you have any idea of which actresses you'd like to star in it? Oh, man. No. The answer is no. Um, I don't. But again, it would be vitally important. It would be sort of the cornerstone of any deal that the casting and the genders of monsters would have to stay true to the book. I'm flexible about a lot of other things, but that would have to stay true. The comics industry is still dominated by white cis men. And even when there are characters of color or gender nonconforming characters, there are often cis white men behind these characters. You and Sana are a creative force, both women of color. If readers want to support more diversity and inclusion in the industry, what are some ways we could do that? That is the age-old question, isn't it? I've been doing this for, you know, I haven't been doing this for decades, but I've been doing this for a while now. And the one thing that has always stood out to me, and I don't think its importance can be overstated, is that we need more structural diversity. The optics of diversity are fine. That's great. I mean, it's, it's nice to see optics. But without structural diversity actually calling the shots and making the hires and having a vision of inclusivity. It's very difficult to maintain this in the long term. Now that said, that said, the other thing that has been important is that I'm seeing more diverse voices actually believing they can do it. And when I first started out, and I would be on a, you know, one of those women of Marvel panels at Comic-Con, which was always kind of funky. They were important too. But what would happen would be that these young women would come up to me afterwards and say, listen, I want to write comics, but I don't believe I can because I've been told that women don't write comics. I've been even told that women don't read comics, even though clearly I'm a comic book reader. And of course it was just complete bullshit. But I could see how it wounded these young women and, and how, it, how uncertain it made them feel. And that would make me angry. And what I would tell them is that, A, BS, fuck that. You, know, you can write comics. You're reading comics. You can do whatever you want. And the other thing is that, again, change doesn't happen if people are staying silent. Change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It requires, it requires people to use their voices and to take up space for themselves and to keep pushing and keep telling stories and engaging and building themselves little communities that become larger communities. And so what I've seen since I started out in comics back in 2000, gosh, how long has it been? It's been almost 10 years, actually. It has been almost 10 years. I see way more. I see way more people of color. I see way more diverse voices. And they're doing web comics. They're doing indie comics, um, graphic novels. I'm seeing more inclusion at the big two. Not that much, but, you know, it's it's here and there. It's, you know, we, we, we take what we can get. And it's change. And it's good. And it's happening. And it's going to happen on a larger scale. And I think that the more creators we see coming into this arena, the more opportunities there will be for actual structural change behind the scenes. I think that that will come in time as well. But what heartens me and what, you know, just 
makes me feel tremendously hopeful, tremendously hopeful is that, is that I see it happening. I see it happening. And I, I haven't been asked in years. I haven't been asked by a young woman in years. I don't think I can write comics because I've been told I can't. I haven't heard that. And it used to be I would hear it all the time and not anymore. And that's so good. That is so, so wonderful. And I take that as a huge sign that we've made progress. I like to hope that we have. And back to that speech at the Humanist Hub, um, you said prior to the election, you were very hopeful about the prospects for our country, and you believed that the arch of justice was inching closer to something good and moral. And then post-election, of course, we're, we're all feeling a little shaken up. <laughs> Has this shift in our sociopolitical climate changed and inspired your future plans, uh, your writing projects, and the directions that they'll take? Well, I think we always knew this wasn't going to be easy, and justice never is. And I think that what clarified inside me post-election is just the need to continue what I'm doing, but more, just more. Like I had a real, a real clear sense of purpose after the election, just crystal, just crystal, crystal clear about what I need to be doing and the stories I need to be telling. And it galvanized me to work harder and to work harder at, at being as excellent a human being as I can. Um, because now is definitely the time for everyone to be excellent to one another in as many different ways as we can, whether it's through volunteer work, whether it's through our art, whether it's just through a kind word or a kind gesture or being protective of those around us. Now is definitely the time to muster up the energy to actually be proactive about being good citizens in our community. And I think that in the past, I think it's easy to take for granted the, the idea that that democracy and that justice is ours, because it's not, that we have to always be working on this and working for it, um, not just for ourselves, but for others, you know, those we love who are around us. And that this is not, this is not an easy process. It's not an easy process. Justice is not an easy process. Equality is not an easy process. And we still haven't achieved equality. And I, I hope that post-election, the urgency of the work becomes ever, ever more intense and focused for everyone. So related to that, in order to have really the strength to continue on the work, and it can be really hard, mm -hmm. there's the flip side of needing to have some self-care. What do you do for your self-care routine? Oh, damn. Listen, you got to understand, like when young people ask me, you know, should I become a writer? And they never get the answer that I think they're expecting. Because I've had a long arc. You know, my journey from new writer to where I am now has been long and occasionally painful. Um, I had a lot of magical thinking, a lot of magical thinking about what it would be like to be a writer. It was a fantasy. It was a good fantasy. It was a beautiful fantasy. Occasionally, I, I look back at my old journals from when I was in college and when I was in law school, and I didn't really think I'd ever become a writer. I didn't really think I would, but I would fantasize about it, and I would write, my life will be completely different. It will be amazing to be able to embrace the storyteller inside me and live inside my mind, one of fantasy and imagination. Oh, like, you know, seeing Hallelujah. And then I sold my first book, which was a beautiful experience. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. And then the next day, I was like, yo, okay, well, I sold this, I sold this book. Now what? I feel exactly the same. I still have to clean the kitty litter. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And being a novelist, being a writer, it changed my life, but certain problems were still the same. And the thing about being a writer is that if you're not careful, it can consume your life because it's a very intimate job. You know, you become very intimate with yourself because you are always in yourself. You're always in your head, no, even if you don't want to be. There's a part of you that's always trapped somewhere else thinking about story, thinking about character, thinking about world, just thinking about words. And that's a double-edged sword 
because if you're not careful, that becomes part of your identity in some really unhealthy ways. So what happened with me was I never stopped. I never stopped. I wrote two to three books a year, and I did that for eight years on top of novellas, on top of comic books. And I was a machine. I was a beast. I worked so hard. And the price was that I would see my friends only once or twice a year at conventions for four days. All of my friend relationships were over occasional phone calls and email. I maintained contact with the outside world through, you know, social media. It's not the same as having friends. It's just, you know, you're, you're projecting yourself online. And I, I knew that. But it was, again, it was a way of maintaining a connection. And I, you know, again, I had friends. I had family. You know, and I saw my family pretty regularly. And I was traveling. I, I lived half the year in China. So I wasn't like a complete shut-in. But even when I was in China, I was working. And it was great. It was a great place to work. But I never let myself let up. You know, I never took a vacation because that would take me away from the work. My work style after a while wasn't even that effective because I was working myself so hard and so tirelessly that there was no room, there was no space for me to regroup. And so I just became more and more inefficient. And so that went on for many, many years. And I never engaged in self-care. I didn't know how. I didn't know how. When writing was hard, I would just almost, you know, punish myself. I would be like, well, you just got to work harder. Don't take a break. You can't afford to take a break. You just got to work harder. You got to work smarter. You know, what are you doing? No one can ever say I don't have a good work ethic. But I, I kind of went overboard. And I reached a certain point about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, where it was a beautiful day out gorgeous, gorgeous day. And I go outside and look at the sky. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I am going to die and my body's going to be eaten by cats. And no one's going to know. No one is actually going to know that I am dead. Because there's no one here. There's no one here. I'm completely alone. All my friends are like hundreds or thousands of miles away. No one calls to check up on me. I'm going to, this is like a really bad situation and this has to change ASAP. And so I had that revelation and I was deeply disturbed by it. (laughs) And it actually sank in, like it really, really sank in. It resonated through me, like through my entire core. And so I just set about changing my life. Now, change after you have engaged in a particular habit for years and years and years is really hard. It's really, really hard. It took me a while. Well, what was interesting was that when I opened my life up, when I opened myself up to the possibility of change, it started coming, opportunities started coming into my life that I could hold on to and grasp and be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to actually take a vacation. I'm going to take a class. I'm going to explore my world. And I made a very conscious decision to stop writing novels. I took a break from writing novels. I was still writing comics because I needed a paycheck. But I actually said, you know what, I'm going to finish these two books on contract, and then I'm done. I'm done, not forever, but I need to figure out my life. I need to regroup, because at that point, writing wasn't even fun anymore. It really wasn't. And I needed to reassess. And I did that. I did that for quite a few years. And so fast forward now to 2016, and my life is completely different where I have a very, very strong community, a strong base of friends. I go out regularly. I see all the people I love. I take care of myself. You know, it's the little things like getting a nice massage here and there, you know, getting my nails done, going to see a movie, taking time to sit and actually read a book, going to a coffee shop to just, you know, read a magazine or take notes in my notebook for another book. But the way I, I engage with the writing now is, is one that is life-based. My engagement is one that is based in me living a full and rich life, and that comes first. The writing in the past always came first before me. I didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was getting the writing done. And now I matter. I come first. And then the writing comes because the writing's not my life. 
The writing's not me. The writing's not my identity. The writing is not my friend. The writing just is something I do. And I enjoy it, but I can't allow it to consume me. Because I got things I got to do. Like I got people I got to hang out with. I got to be happy. And me being happy and me being able to step back from the work and have some perspective around it has allowed me, I think, to become, I hope anyway, a better writer. If nothing else, I'm a happier writer. So I'll take that. You know, even if my writing goes to crap, you know, at least I'm happy. <laughs> you know, that's all I can ask for. But it took me a long time to come to that realization. And it was difficult too, because when I slowed down, I felt like I was failing myself. When I decided not to write novels for a little bit, it was really difficult because my identity was so wrapped up in this idea of being not just a writer, but being a productive writer, that I got a certain number of books done each year. And that productivity was also linked to my identity. And so once I stopped writing, once I took that break, all of a sudden was like, oh, I'm lazy. Like, what happened? I'm like, I'm lazy. Like, this, is, this isn't right. There's something wrong with me. Like, I'm, I'm really messing up here. And so I had to battle all these feelings. But ultimately, what won out was this idea of radical self-care that I really, really, I didn't want to end up the corpse being eaten by cats. Like, that stayed at the front of my mind, no matter what happened. That, I just hung that. There was, that was on a, like, a, a, a post-it note at the front of my brain. Corpse, cats, meat. <laughs> Like that was that was it, and as long as I kept that at the front of my brain, I, I you know I I kept moving forward in a way that was that was was healthy for me, but it was really difficult. It was really really difficult. All I can think of is the hang in there, baby kitty, <laughs> about to consume you. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting that that story is very similar to what we were talking about earlier with Micah. The writing was your monstrum in some way. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to be consumed by anything that we love and also anything that is so deep inside of us that we can't see it, you know, because there's there's some things that just are very deep inside of us that we don't see and that we act on and that control us and we never realize it. Old traumas, you know, old whatever, hang-ups, old bad habits that we take for granted you know, so often that they become invisible. And whatever it is, if you're not careful, if you're not self-aware, it will eat you up. Control it or it will control you. Exactly. I just read Maria Semple's book in which that was a key thing for one of the characters. So thinking about writing prose, it sounds like you're maybe ready to get back oh, into it. Oh, I've been it. ready. No, I'm, I'm working on a new novel. Any hints about what it might be about? <laughs> That's totally fair. Not the moment. It'll be very it'll be very different from something I've done before. I, I've got a couple things cooking. Prior to doing this, we put out the call to get some questions from our community, and so I'm going to ask a few of those now. So this question came from Andre Behrens. When you're writing something as massive as Monstrous, where do you start? And has it been different for Monstrous than with your other works? You start with a primal scream, <laughs> and then you go from there. <laughs> Yeah. Monstrous has, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done. It is absolutely, hands down, the hardest thing it's ever done. Writing comic books for Marvel, writing the X-Men, writing Dark Wolverine, X-23, that was child's play in comparison. When I say that, I don't mean to diminish the work I did there because I worked incredibly hard and I, I put a lot of care and thought into the characters. But at the end of the day, those were characters that were already established in a world that is already established. And I thought I knew what I was doing when I decided to take on Monstrous. I thought, oh, I've written all these comics. I got this. I got it. And then I started working on Monstrous. And I realized, oh, I'm in deep trouble. I am in a lot of trouble. Because I was trying to write an epic fantasy. I was trying to write a novel. And I was trying to do it in in the comic book medium. It's a very different animal to have to construct a brand new world and brand new characters on a massive scale and do so in 20 pages per month. 
Like, that's a lot. And I had, I cheated. I cheated because the first issue was 66 pages long because there was no way I could do it in just 20. And I was like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to do it, you know, whatever. We'll just see what happens. And I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. But writing Monstrous has been really hard. And Monstrous began as a desire more than an idea. I thought I had an idea. What I had was just straight up, just, I just want to do it. Like, I just think it's, you know, I want to tell the story about this war and this girl and monsters. I, I got it. But that was just a desire. And I was foolish because I, I thought that was something more substantial than it was. And so I set the wheels in motion thinking I had it when I didn't. It became apparent to me very quickly that I was in a lot of trouble, that what I had was was this nebulous construction in my head of what this story would be. But I didn't have any details. I didn't have a real character. I didn't have a real world, nothing that was substantial. It was just smoke and mirrors. And it took me about a year. It took me a, about a year of just really incredibly hard work and a lot of tears. Man, I cried and cried and cried because I was just so frustrated, so frustrated, just banging my head against the wall until finally things began to fall into place. The world began to fall into place. The characters began to fall into place. But it wasn't until I actually started writing the book and throwing out drafts and returning and throwing out more drafts that I began to really get a hold of it. Because I'm not a natural plotter, which is really bad. When you write comics, you can get away with it when you write novels. You can get away with like writing by the seat of your pants in a novel because you can go back and fix things. You know, it's easy. You write 400 words, eh, the first 100 didn't work, no problem. You just go back and you change it. You can't do that with comics. Because once you write that script, you give it to your artist and they draw it, you're done. That's it. That's it. Once it goes to the printer, once it's out, that's it. If you discover a problem, <laughs> too bad. You know, you just better work with what you've got and, and fix it later. That, that's been difficult with Monstrous because, again, my inclination is just to write by the seat of my pants. Can't do it can't do it. You run into a lot of trouble if you try. And so I've really had to, in some cases unsuccessfully, try to sit down and plot and just hammer out things, you know, really in a concrete way. And it's been hard. It's been really hard. It's something I need to get better at, but I'm getting there. You know, that's the hope anyway. At the end of the day, though, and this is what I tell my students, all of these different parts, character, conflict, and world work on each other. You know, they're part of this organic whole. And one affects the other. But some are some way more heavily than others, depending on the kind of story you're trying to tell. You know, you can get away with telling a story that doesn't have much world building, but boy, the characters and the conflict better be like just sharp and tight. The, the same doesn't really work in reverse. If you have a great world, but weak characters, you're going to run into trouble. And so at the end of the day, what I always try to keep my focus on, no matter what, even if everything else feels like it's falling apart, are the characters. I really try to keep my focus on the characters. Micah, Kippa, Ren, you know, all these other secondary characters are in the book. I try to keep my eye on them, no matter what happens. And that, that can be a good guide for me. That's a way for me to, to keep my focus and not stray. But it's easy for me to stray. I'm like a cat that way. I like... I like to check things out and just roll around and, you know, yeah. Oh, man. Writing's hard. <laughs> you did a great job because you actually answered one of the other questions we had gotten, which was when did you know you had it, that this was the right story? I'm not sure I always do know I have it. <laughs> Sorry. That's fair. <laughs> Let me tell you, when the first issue of Monstrous came out, I really wasn't sure if I had it. But at a certain point, you just have to learn how to let go. That's an important part of becoming a writer, learning how to let go, even when you're not sure that what you've written is any good. And every time I write an issue of Monstrous, I'm not sure it's any good. And I always, I always cross my fingers and cross my toes and thank God for Sana that she collaborates with me because she's, she's a mad genius. I know that whatever crap I turn out, she can turn to gold. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, sometimes writing is a leap of faith where you can hope, and you can hope for the possibility that what you've done is good. But you're never, at least for me, I'm never quite sure, 100% sure. I just shut my eyes and jump and just to say, okay, here we go, world. <laughs> Take it or leave it. 
So with all of that said, and this question comes from Boone Sriprom, what's one thing you want your work to offer to this world and its readers? Oh, damn. Oh, man. When I was a kid, the books that I loved and that I treasured the most and the ones that, that meant the most to me were the ones that either made me feel bigger than my body, and by that I mean capable of doing more than what I had planned for myself, you know, the stories that made me imagine more for myself, that made me want to go places I had never imagined, the stories that made me want to be brave. Those were the stories that I always valued the most and that stayed with me. And then there were also the stories that I felt like I learned something from, that they weren't stories with a message. They weren't stories that were supposed to teach me anything. But that through reading them, I felt like my mind and my heart was expanded and that I became a person who understood a little more about the world than I had before. Those were the kinds of stories that I loved growing up. And I'm not saying that Monstrous does any of that for anyone, but I guess when I'm writing and when I'm telling stories, there's a part of me that hopes that somewhere there's someone who will pick up a novel of mine or a comic and read it and feel maybe just a little bit better about their day. You know, that they'll have been taken away to another world and they'll feel bigger than their bodies or they'll come away feeling, wow, maybe I can be a little brave today, you know, or I feel a little bit better about myself today. And if that happens even for one person, then I feel like I've done my job. And then the rest of it is that writing is an act of passion and love. And I pour myself into my work and I and I hope I hope sometimes that the love and the passion show, you know, comes through. But you know, at the end of the day, as writers, we we have no control over what people take from our work. We hope. We hope. But but we let it go into the world and it, it does what it does, or you know, maybe it does nothing at all. And that's okay. That's okay. It belongs to everyone at that point. Yes, it does. I wanna thank you at Kamikaze. I want to thank all the readers. I want to thank all the other female retailers who have really been so kind, so, so kind to Monstrous and to our team and who have really supported us and just been completely generous. We cannot thank you guys enough. Like it means the world to us. And we're here because of all of you. And we love you and we appreciate you so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us tonight. We really appreciate that. I'm looking forward to reading more of Monstrous. Thank you. Thank you.